This is the Mobile Tech Podcast, brought to you by worldpodcasts.com. Now here's your host, tech girl, Miriam Joie. Brought to you by Audible. Stay tuned for a special offer at the end of the show. Hi, and welcome to the Mobile Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Joie, and today is Thursday, June 25th, 2020, and my guest is the awesome Nick Gray of Fandroid. Hi, Nick. How are you? I am doing excellent. Yourself? I'm all right. Things are a little crazy in the world, as you know, but uh, we're hanging in there. This has been a crazy week in terms of Apple news, and I want to talk about this with you. Do you want to talk first about the silicon, or do you want to talk first about the Androidification of iOS? Hey, um, let's go with the hardware part. Yes. So just a quick intro. Unless you've been living under a rock, folks, you know that Apple's being rumored to introduce their own ARM-based, primarily, and we're going to talk about that in a sec, uh, silicon to uh, their Mac series. Uh, the same way as they transitioned from PowerPC to Intel in 2005, in the same way as they transitioned from 68K to PowerPC in the 90s. So they know how to do this properly. and so. I've been excited about getting myself a very light and thin MacBook 12-inch replacement for my existing Road Warrior MacBook 12-inch that has ARM in it. So I'm super excited this transition is finally happening. But now we know the details and I want to kind of see what you think because you're also a Road Warrior. Yeah, I mean, now that we have the details as to what it actually is, it kind of Honestly, it does make a lot of sense to make this transition. Anyone who's used a laptop or used a smartphone for the last decade or so, you've seen the divergence in hardware versus performance that it offers. And, you know, going back to laptops and PCs, battery life has been that main issue with, you know, the laptop segment for so long. You know, we're, we're finally reaching that 10-hour mark where we're, we're seeing longevity come in, but Honestly, like if you take that same laptop and put an ARM chipset in it, you can get significantly more. The performance that you're going to get is less, but it's not significantly less where it would actually have a huge impact on the regular consumers and how they actually use a laptop for day-to-day use. I think you're right. I think the big challenge is I'm not even sure performance would be affected that much. And I'll, I'll, I think I'll get to that in a second. I think because Apple is highly integrated vertically, and we've seen what they've done with the iPad in terms of performance uh, and the benchmarks on the iPads. I'm not too worried about performance. I'm worried about performance in other ways, as in like having to emulate older software, which they're doing. We're mm-hmm. going to touch on that. Uh, but I think that uh, the first thing I want to talk about that's kind of like this very much this, these are not the droids you're looking for, ARM wave that Apple did during their keynote of not calling an ARM system like mm-hmm. yeah right because they're calling it apple silicon and that's fair and as i said to you before we started recording the rationale here is that the only thing that's arm licensed at this time anymore are the cpu cores there was a time when the early a series chips from apple where they were using an arm design for the gpu as well but they've gone to their own silicon for that so it's not inconceivable that as the Mac line based on Apple's own silicon evolves in the next few 5, 10, 20 years, that we're going to see them leaving the ARM licensing and doing their own thing in-house, like very much like, like what Qualcomm's done in some cases. So to me, this is very Apple not to bring up ARM in the discussion at all, you know? Oh, of course. I mean, they, they want to put their name on it. They want to position it as something that they are doing. But as you mentioned, at the core, it's still an ARM processor, but what's surrounding it is going to be built specifically for Apple's needs. And, you know, they might, they might license GPU architecture for, from ARM in order to build this. We don't know at this point because we don't know what the actual chipset's going to look like in the That's future. That's true, yeah. But, you know, it, on, it's... It's a good thing and a bad thing. I, I think from from a perspective of Apple's taking full control, you know, I'm I'm an Android fanboy. I've been using Android since the the first day the G1 hit the market. Um, Same and, here. <laughs> but we constantly go back to Apple's vertical integration and the benefits that you get to that vertical integration because they can decide 
every single thing along the line and dictate performance all the way across the board, which Android can't do. I mean, there's so many different chipset manufacturers within Android. There's so many different manufacturers for the hardware itself. And then you come to the software and trying to integrate all that. Android does an incredible job at that, but you don't actually get that vertical integration and the benefits from that vertical integration being able to maximize the hardware for those specific tasks. And, you know, and this is part of why this transition is happening for Apple, because when they transitioned from PowerPC to to Intel, Steve Jobs was very clear on stage. And I I think he was not hyperboling for once to say that PowerPC architecture wasn't evolving to meet the needs of the Mac users, right? In terms of Mm -hmm. power per watt. IBM at the time was the licensee making the PowerPC chips for Apple. And... They couldn't put a G5 in a laptop because of thermal issues. Mm-hmm. And G5 was, even then, already beaten by Intel. So, you know, it was becoming very urgent for Apple to have a chip in their laptops and in their desktops that was competitive. And Intel brought that to the table at the time. And today we have the same problem. Intel's been stalled for a few generations now. They haven't delivered what Apple needs and Apple in-house making their silicon, their ARM silicon for the iPad in particular and the iPhone as well. The Bionic uh, chip on the current iPhones is really impressive. It's it's a matter of like controlling their own destiny and that vertical integration, yes. But it's also a, kind of a wall they're hitting with Intel chips. And yeah, it's not a problem in the big, you know, Mac Pro, right? Because it's got all the thermal headroom that you can imagine it's a monster that can do whatever you want it to do but on a laptop even the iMac Pro is a good example of thermal like the iMac Pro is impressive technically but it possibly could be running faster if it wasn't you know an all-in-one right like and that's exactly why the Mac Pro now exists but because putting Xeon chips in a in something that thin is challenging and so with the MacBook Pros in particular the big thing has always been thermal efficiency and power per watt. And I think right now, I think they're at the point where they can, whether they use ARM or not long-term, they're definitely using ARM, at least CPU cores now. And I'm pretty sure they're going to be using their own GPU cores on this or maybe EMDs, right? That, that's, the young, that's the other thing you have to, to remember too, is that it doesn't have to be ARM for the GPU in the sense that it can be somebody else as well that, that they work with very tightly, like they, you know, work with PowerVR for a while. Well, and I I think that's going to be the differentiator here where right now there's this distinguishing factor of people who use Macs. There's people who just use Macs because they love Macs. And then there's this creative community around Macs who use Macs because they like the Mac platform, but also because of the hardware performance that it offers with the graphics performance. I mean, there's there are laptops running Windows that can match what they're putting out, but there's something about a Mac and what it can do for a creative person who's doing video rendering or graphic design or anything like that. And that's where I think we're going to see the chipset evolve more than what it has with Intel, because right now they're using Intel. And then, you know, sometimes we're, we're seeing those they're they're using the GPU aspect of what the Intel chip has to offer, but most likely they're going in a different direction. If they can include the GPU, the high-performance GPU that they actually need into the chipset themselves, then the Mac instantaneously becomes extremely more power efficient for high-performance tasks than it currently is. And there's nothing that could replicate that on the Windows side. Yeah, no, absolutely. and And so... You know, here's with this tight integration now, you can have, you know, we've already seen that the iPads render video. Like once you have edited an iMovie on the iPad, which Mm -hmm. is something that not all creatives are up for, right? But that's why the Mac exists and that's why there's Final Cut on the Mac. Once you hit render at 4K, the iPad will win every time. Unless you have like a Mac Pro with like Mm -hmm. a bunch of freaking cores and whatever and the accelerator cards that they have that custom... Uh, video rendering card, right? And that's that's because you can almost have like subprocessors that are dedicated to encoding MPEG or whatever it is, right? And that's what we're seeing. And that's something that the Mac users could, will immediately benefit from on an ARM Mac. So 
I've been gung-ho about it for years for portability and power per watt and battery life and, and connectivity to have a Mac book, like a small Mac, like small than the air, like the original 12-inch MacBook. Uh, that's for my go-to because I'm a Mac user and I'll adapt in terms of software and stuff. But I think for a lot of people, it goes beyond that. And it's really interesting that Apple has basically given themselves the same two years that they did with the Intel transition back in the day to bring everything over to ARM. And that means the Mac Pro is going to go to ARM at some point or two, sorry, Apple Silicon. And the other thing is that they still have a few Intel Macs in the pipe. So this transition should be very smooth because they did it very smoothly last time. And to do that, there are two really big weapons that are making this possible. The first one is Universal Binaries version 2, which is this way of packaging binaries like programs, apps, so that they can run on two architectures, whether they're downloaded on Intel Mac or an Apple Silicon Mac, whatever you want to call it. And then the other one is, of course, Rosetta 2, which is Rosetta originally was the emulation part that made an Intel Mac able to run PowerPC apps. And with a bit of a performance hit, but back then it wasn't too bad, to be honest with you. That emulation layer was rock solid. My spouse is still running some old games for Mac that they don't want to give up. Like they're just classics that are PowerPC games using Rosetta emulation on an older Mac that's an Intel-based Mac. So it works. Like you can emulate games, so it's fine. So I think Rosetta 2 to me is going to be kind of like the tool that's going to allow a lot of people to transition easily. But there is a bigger problem here that we should talk about, which is the fact that with Catalina, the current version of macOS, they abandoned 32-bit binaries and 64-bit binaries are the only thing you can run. And so in this last year, year and a half, as people have been transitioning to Catalina, they've lost a lot of old legacy apps because there was no emulation layer from going from 32-bit to 64. Apple just has been for five years now telling developers and users, some of your old apps are going to stop working eventually because we're going to switch to 64-bit. But nobody listened. And when people mm -hmm. upgraded to Catalina, there was a lot of outcry because a lot of people lost apps that worked. Like any old version of Photoshop Creative Suite that is not subscription-based... Was gone. ...is 32-bit. Um, like I'm still on CS5 and uh, because I just paid for it once and I don't feel like paying Adobe monthly fee and it works for me. Like I don't need all that complexity of better versions. And and so if I switch to Catalina right now, which is the current OS, I'm going to lose that. And another one is Microsoft Office. I have a license for an old version of Office. I paid full price for it. It works. I don't use Office very much because I use Google Docs now, but sometimes it's nice to have the legacy. and. If I were to upgrade to Catalina, I would lose that. So I think there's a big there's a bigger problem here for those people who haven't bought a Mac in a while and they're going to go to ARM, even with Rosetta 2, the emulation layer, to make Intel 64-bit binaries run on an ARM or Apple Silicon-based Mac. There's going to be the problem of all the 32-bit Intel apps that they're mm. not going to be able to run because of this already existing compatibility issue with Catalina, right? So for the end user that's listening to this, this is very technical, but what I'm saying is that if you're a Mac user right now, please, please do yourself a favor and either do not upgrade to Catalina and stay on your old Intel Mac for a few more years or upgrade to Catalina now and deprecate, lose, like get rid of these 32-bit apps that you do no longer need so you're ready for the ARM transition. So if you plan, if you're gung-ho like me about the ARM, the, the Apple Silicon-based Macs, because of portability or power of speed of rendering or whatever, make sure that you're already on Catalina in the next year or two, because you're going to be really SOL if you're not, yeah. right? I mean, I, ha I had this conversation with somebody about something completely different. It was about phones using micro SD cards and those with internal storage and someone's specific way that they created playlists and the playlists that they were able to create weren't supported by internal storage, but they were supported by external SD cards. And I was like, you know, that technology is going away. Make the transition sooner rather than later, because the longer you hold out, the harder it will be to make the transition. I mean, just imagine someone upgrading from a computer five years ago to something now. Yes, the performance is so much better. 
but the experience that you get with that device, the software experience and the changes that you have to make from your software catalog to just the way that you interact with it is a dramatic change. No one wants to spend thousands of dollars every couple of years just to upgrade so that they have incremental changes to deal with, but it is so much easier to do that rather than making that huge leap, which kind of leaves people with a bad taste in their mouth once they make the change saying, why did you change it? It was so much better before. I have no clue what's going on now. The reality is if you're a Mac user right now and you haven't been paying attention, you need to know about this big Catalina transition that just happened because you're, if you haven't switched yet, you're going to be in a bag of hurt if you do without knowing what you're doing. But further than that, if you're already on Catalina and you're aware of this stuff, this is going to kind of happen again in the sense that, yes, universal binaries are going to happen and you're going to see you know, all the big mainstream apps, all of Apple's apps, of course, are going to be converted over to our support ARM, no problem. I think once people get their first ARM MacBook Pros, which actually from the rumors, it seems like the iMac and the MacBook Pro might be the first to get ARM or rather Apple Silicon, because that's what happened with Intel last time. They didn't do the MacBook Air equivalent, the regular MacBook back then first. They did the Pro and then did the iMac as well first. So if that happens, when we first get these Apple Silicon-based MacBook Pros, and people run Final Cut on those, I think we're going to see a lot of creators losing their freaking mind in terms of how much faster and better and the battery life and everything for that. Mm -hmm. Apparently, earlier this week, Apple said that Adobe's on board and Microsoft's on board. Even though you might not be using Adobe and Microsoft products, this is a big deal for a lot of people. So if they don't have that ready, like they didn't with Intel, this is going to be a problem. But I'm pretty sure Apple will be fine and a lot of the indie developers will be fine. So if you're one of those Mac users on Catalina already and you've already made that transition, you've expunged all your 32-bit apps and you're ready, you should be ready to go. And if you're Adobe subscriber, then of course, at some point, they'll have an ARM binary for you and everything will be much faster and nicer. But I think... Some people that are like heavily using Apple software right now, like Final Cut type stuff, they're going to be like, wow, uh, I think this is going to be very impressive for them. So the one thing I want to point out, though, like they announced that there's going to be native iOS app support within the operating system. That is a whole different can of worms. I, I want to just touch on it. It, really it is. But so here's here's my thing, though. No touchscreen, though. <laughs> yes, but Oof. will will developers like Microsoft and also Adobe, who already have a huge selection of applications available for iPads and iPhones, simply create an iOS version rather than creating a native version for the ARM chip to run on the new Macs? Wouldn't that be easier? And it definitely would be easier. But does that actually benefit the consumer rather than using the full potential of the chipset itself built specifically for the Mac? They simply do a couple modifications to their iOS versions of those applications and say, hey, we've done our work. We're done. Yeah. So you're right about that. I think that's what's going to happen. So yeah, iOS apps are going to run, obviously, on Apple Silicon-based Macs because, well, it's... There's no emulation need or anything. The only big question is the touchscreen, right? Like we know right now Macs don't have touchscreens and Apple's been very adamant they don't want a touchscreen on the Mac, but they could surprise us and put touchscreen on the, the ARM-based Macs coming, right? Like they've done this before. We'll never have a pencil or a stylus and boom, now we have the Apple pencil, right? So the point is that if they have, of course, touchscreen emulation, then, you know, it'll be a lot easier to use those apps. Well, but it, I mean, the, with, the I, with the new iPad Pro though, there's, new mouse support. So, I mean, they've ported it the other direction first. It's not the same paradigm, though. Like, a Mac user expects this to be a desktop-like experience, Oh, right? I, I totally get that. So, so, I think we should still separate the two, even if in the future they could merge. So, I want to say that you're right about this, is that the reason maybe that they were so gung-ho about particularly Adobe being ready for this transition on their keynote is mm -hmm. they've been drag-kicking and screaming to make iPad versions of Photoshop and stuff, right? And so it's not a huge stretch at that point, right? That you optimize the UI for, for Mac, right? From these apps that you create for iPad. And you make it more of a Mac-like experience, mimicking what the Intel binaries for Creative Suite look like, right? Because the code, like the actual, like resizing a photo, doing this filter, that filter, that, that's been optimized for ARM forever now, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just the UI paradigm that's a little bit different for a desktop versus a tablet or a smartphone. So I hope they don't mess that up too much. That's my biggest fear with this iOS and iPad, iPhone app compatibility is that we're going to see some half-baked experiences there. And Apple's not about half-baked experiences. So how do they enforce that, right? So uh, we'll see how it goes. But I'm really gung-ho, not so much for like being the final cut person that I am, but more for like, the, the portability, battery life, thin light, low heat, LTE and 5G connectivity built in that we might see if they ever bring back something like the MacBook 12-inch, you know? Mm-hmm. And... I'll be there, man. I will hang on to my old cranky 12-inch Intel Mac, which is slow as F, but good enough to run a few tabs. I mean, honestly, look, it runs 10 tabs on any web browsers with no issues. That's good enough for me. And it's not too bad at rendering video, honestly. It's kind of surprising when you think that thing's over five years old now and it's running some Core M3, whatever it is. Like, it's not really good. It doesn't have a fan, which is nice. It doesn't get too hot either. But it's just, I want something like that. And so that's why I've been always gung-ho about this Mac transition, this, this ARM transition, this, sorry, Apple Silicon, blah, blah, blah. So I think, look, this is exciting. And to me, that's the biggest news from Apple for this week. I think that I'm really looking forward to it. But at the same time, I'm dreading it because I haven't made that Kalani transition because I have 32-bit apps. So for me, it's not so much... I'm not so worried about the Rosetta emulation. I'm sure that's going to work just fine. Unlike Microsoft's emulation for Windows 10 on ARM, which is not very fast. It works, but it's only supporting 32-bit apps. So they have the reverse problem, right? <laughs> They're not supporting 64-bit emulation, but only 32, whereas Apple apparently is going to only support 64-bit emulation. So it'll be interesting to see how that works. So I'm sure that'll work pretty well, all things considered. But at the same time... You need to make that jump to Catalina right now. And for me, that's the big, that's the big hurdle. That's what's holding me back, you know? Mm-hmm. Ugh. But anyway, let's talk quickly about how iOS is becoming more like Android. I don't want to spend too much time on this because we need to talk about a bunch of other stuff like OnePlus. But man... I think it's a good thing. Yeah, me too. It's, it's great. But have you seen these features? It's crazy. Right? Honestly, like with... Some of these features that Apple's adding has are some of the things that have been kept keeping me away from iOS. I use iOS devices every now and then when a new device comes out just to get the comparison between the platforms and the hardware. But adding widgets to your home screen and essentially giving you an app drawer and a way to organize your apps that are not on the home screen at all times. I mean, come on, what's more Android than that? Yeah, I cannot believe there are people out there who are happy using Android phones that don't have app trays turned on. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Like, I'm not just talking about Chinese phones. A lot of them don't have app trays because they're trying to mimic Apple. But I'm talking about like, there are like, I think LG, right? Yeah, LG. Yep. By default, I think the app tray is on, right? The app tray is on by default, but you can turn it off and on. You can turn it off. So my point is there are some Android phones out there legitimately in the US that don't have an app tray. And to me, that's like, that's not an Android device. Like the app tray is where I don't launch stuff from my home screen. Like, I have a few key apps on my home screen. But all the rest are typed away. Gmail and my text messages and stuff. But I go in the app tray all the time. And I love that it's alphabetical. I know where everything is. I have hundreds of apps. And I still find my way around. And then if I can't see something real quick, I just type in the search. But, you know, it's interesting that Apple's finally getting it. And I think what they're doing by sorting by categories, we've seen that on some Android phones, right? Like TCL most recently. Yeah, TCL's done it. Samsung does it within essentially putting folders within your app drawer. Uh, HTC, I think, was the one who pioneered that about four or five years ago, putting folders in your app drawer and by default sticking specific apps inside of folders in your app drawer. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's great. And I think it's going to help the power users on iPhone a lot. And the nice thing is it's completely optional in the sense that it's the, it's the rightmost screen now in the stack. So you don't have to worry about it if you're a user. You can just ignore it. Um, mm-hmm. if you're an iOS user. But for those of us who like to customize and have a crazy workflow, I think it's going to be great. Same with the widgets. I think the widgets finally coming, and I'll be frank with you, and this is the same with thing with Apple. It's like, yes, front-facing cameras on my Nokia N95 predates the original iPhone, right, by a few months. And I mean by that, that it wasn't just the N95. Many phones before the iPhone had front-facing cameras and could do video calls and stuff. Many other devices, yep. It's just interesting to me how when Apple does it, immediately it's done better because I hate to say this so far, what I've seen of their widgets implementation 
is so much better than anything we have on Android. Yes and no. So, so here's the thing, like they've come out of the box or come out of the gate with these looks at what these widgets will look like. And being Apple, they will have restrictions as to how developers will be able to implement widgets because they're Apple and they are the gatekeepers and they have to approve every application that comes through their app store. And honestly, it's someone else mentioned that they look so much better than Android widgets. I mean, yes, but what we've seen is only a select few, which are, have been essentially curated by Apple for this presentation. But also, there's some amazing looking widgets on Android, too. I, the one thing that bugs me a little bit from the Android perspective is that developers have not been putting in the time to create widgets. And I think they are going to maybe be rejuvenated in their ambition for widgets with this new version of iOS. And hopefully some of that will translate back to Android as well. I mean, look, I'm just saying in general, like I don't disagree with you. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here in the sense that I feel like it seems to be more elegant to me, but it's a double-edged sword. I feel like the fact that the top left corner is a magnet on iOS's screen interface, whatever, home screens, you can't just randomly put an icon or widget anywhere you want, right? No, there, there's still the organization of the home screen. But that... because of that, I also think that even though I don't like that, I feel it's a little too steering you too much. But I still feel that aesthetically, it works really well with this widget system of theirs, you know? Yeah. Right. And a consistent look, like on Android, you have some widgets that look like they're not even like, it feels like you're like, in Windows 95 or something, you know what I'm saying? Well, uh, you have some applications that haven't updated their widgets since Gingerbread. And exactly. That's what I'm saying. We've completely gone away with the letter scheming and desserts for Android, and we're on Android, moving to Android 11. I mean, it, I don't know. Crazy. And so I think maybe let's revisit this in five years. Maybe some old widgets will stick around on iOS and look really old by then. But right now, I feel I like the consistency of the user experience. And as an aside, since we talked about macOS 11, which is Big Sur, which is, will be the ARM-compatible version of macOS 11, they're pushing a lot of the look and feel of the iOS experience and iPadOS experience into macOS. For better or worse, I'm... Not 100% sure I feel good about that, but I'll, in the same way as I'm going to eventually have to transition to 64-bit apps and ARM, I'm going to try to be there for the ride. Uh, as long as you don't damage the core functionality of my Mac, Apple, I'm happy. Like, give me a command line because it's Unix under the hood and I can still do that in Big Sur and have my workflows and my scripts running. I'm happy as fine, you know? That's why I could never use an iPad. I, I mean, there is scripting on the iPad using, I can't remember what it is. I mean, but you can't script across apps. You can't do batch, you know, scripts in, in Unix and stuff like that, which I have a whole bunch of workflows around batch processing in Unix, you know? So what do you think? You know, honestly, I think this is one of the biggest updates that they've done for iOS in a long time as far as the user interface goes. They still haven't addressed some of the issues that I still take with with it but honestly like it's becoming the the delta between android and ios is becoming smaller and smaller i think they're converging they're eventually going to be one not one but functionally i think they're going to be very similar in five years if Correct. android still exists in five years as we know it maybe as we know it because we might be moving to something else because google's been talking about some new os for a while and who knows if the manufacturers will adopt it at that point. Huawei is obviously betting on their own variation on Android open source core uh, for their OS because they don't have a choice. So I think it's really hard to predict five years from now right now because we don't even know what Android's going to evolve into. And we don't even know if all the manufacturers are necessarily going to stay on board with Android the googly way. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, I wouldn't put it past the Chinese manufacturers to want to be more independent and more vertically integrated, at least for their own markets, right? And, and, and arguably, if you look at it, if you're a Google user today, like a heavy Google user, and you buy an iOS device, with iOS 14, you can now set the email client and the browser to be something else than Apple's. So between that and the widgets and the app library, I think is what Apple calls it, 
it's getting very blurred whether should you care that you're a Google app user in an iOS world less and less, right? Well, I mean, the majority of the people that I know, the main applications that they use on their iOS devices are all Google, Google apps. apps. Yeah. And a lot of times, some of the new features come to iOS, you know, a couple weeks or maybe a month before they From make Google. it to Android yeah. as well. Totally. So, I mean, I, honestly, I, I don't think there really is much of a difference as to, oh, I'm in Google's world, I have to choose Android. Uh, but there is that distinction of I'm in Apple's world, so I can't switch to Android. And, and that's that, definitely happening. Yeah. Yeah. And so Apple, Apple still has that gate that they can lock people in on if you're using Apple services as opposed to Google services, which are readily available on iOS and Android. So, yeah, uh, but one of the one of the features that they rolled out and honestly, I I had completely forgot it wasn't there was picture in picture, which on Android we've been using for a couple of oh my years. God, now. Yeah, I saw it on the list. And I was like, picture in picture. Didn't didn't iOS have picture in picture? No. And I, I am extremely excited for this feature to roll out to all iOS users because it's amazing. I use it every single day on my Android device when I'm watching a YouTube video and then start browsing the web or start, you know, answering text messages or anything like that. Being able to continue watching your video while you're doing other things is absolutely amazing. And welcome to the party. Yeah. Look, I have an iPhone. I have a, well, I have several. My spouse uses an iPhone. I have been very careful about not going down too deep into the rabbit hole of being sucked into, and I'm a Mac user, to be sucked into Apple. So I don't use any of Apple's email, calendaring, contacts, or any of that on any of my devices. I use Google. I use Google Photos for backup. So where I use Apple's ecosystem are for things like backing up my devices, like the core backup, right? Like the mm -hmm. actual system backup. Like if I lost my phone tomorrow, I could restore everything. I use that functionality. But for the photos part, I don't use that function. I use Google's. And a lot of people do that because it's free on Google, right? Um, whereas on Apple, you have to pay money because you run out really quickly of the free storage they give you. That's one of my big gripes with them. It's like, you've all the money in the world, Apple. If I've spent money on this hardware, I know that you make a lot of money on services, but can you maybe not charge for the backup stuff? <laughs> like, that's pissing me off. That would be nice. They're a services company now, not a hardware company. I so know, I know. I that's know. where they got to make their money off of you. So that's one thing. Then the next thing is, you know, the remembering Wi-Fi passwords and stuff. So some keychain stuff I use across devices for core essential services. But like, I don't even have my accounts set up for email on the email client on my Mac. Like I use just the web, right? I use Google at Gmail exclusively. Gmail, yep. Stuff like that. So like I'm trying to stay like i don't I'd ever turn on iMessages or what's called messages now i guess on on ios devices i just stay with mms sms for better or for worse hopefully they very very soon they'll implement rcs on ios i'm sure they'll have to at some point like do you think they will they have no reason to i mean now that it's encrypted and everything like i mean wasn't wasn't the whole point of imessage being able to be open and be able to be multi-platform which they never did no they never did it that was the promise <laughs> from the very beginning so that the, their decision to not be multi-platform and lock people in means to me that they have no interest ever of joining the rs R, R, the rcs bandwagon uh, I think they're going to have to. But what what incentive is there for them? Carriers are going to demand it. And since when have carriers demanded anything from uh, Apple? Yeah, the carriers still have a lot of influence because the carriers want to move away from SMS as a, as a system for messaging. It's legacy at this point. Like RCS allows you to move beyond SMS. This is true, but here but here's the thing. RCS isn't a catch-all. RCS, there's different levels of implementation. So we've had the original levels of yeah, implementation for a couple of years now. So they could implement the level of implementation that is simply text messaging. Yeah, I'm not sure because people are going to demand like, you know, iPhone users still are going to have to interact with non-iPhone users. That's not going to change. There's still a lot of people buying Android phones. So what I'm saying is that it's Apple's best benefit to eventually support RCS at least insofar that an Apple user can see message confirmations reliably, that they can send voice messages 
and images and and they and they can do that honestly i am on an android phone with a spouse who's on an ios phone and they have iMessage. they have messages turned on and i have no issues whatsoever sending them multimedia messages and texts and whatever now i'm on rcs on t-mobile but it's never been an issue every time i've ever sent a picture to a group of people they've received it too and when they are in a group conversation with a bunch of iPhone and Android users, everything just works. So I, I'm not even sure this is a necessary, I mean, the only thing that doesn't work right now very well across between iOS and Android is message confirmation. Mm-hmm. But other than that, like, I don't think images and all that stuff has, has been broken. It seems to always have worked to me. Yeah, I mean, they, they work, it's just they're low, lower quality when they're sent to someone who's not on yeah, and that again, RCS fixes that, so that's in Apple's best interest to support yeah. it, right? And and so I think they're gonna they're going to, and I think the carriers are also gonna say, hey, you know, they're not gonna pressure them because they can't, but they're just gonna say, hey, you know, this would help us because we need to get rid of these SMS servers, you know. I think we need to market on. We need to start taking tallies as to when when it'll be. Will it be six months before carriers turn off SMS? which is probably going to be another decade or, you know, when yeah, you're is right. It? It's, it's going to be a really long time before that happens. Yeah. And so in five years, when they finally do, we're like, I, I got the date right. <laughs> you know, look at Dieter. Remember how he's been like gung ho about RCS forever now? It's been like four years. And it's been like forever, right? So those big OnePlus rumors, let's spend a bit of time on that. And then we can go through like fire off the news items real quick. Let's do it. So... I want to kind of hear it from you because I'm a little confused. My gut feeling is we're getting a whole bunch of different news coming in at the same time. Some things that either Pete Lau or somebody at OnePlus said or hinted towards is that weird Instagram account that popped up that I'm following now. You That was private. You have to follow and they followed me back and now I got to see some, some cool marketing pictures. There is rumors of for a while now, of a OnePlus 8 Lite, also known as a OnePlus Z, which mm-hmm. would be potentially India only or maybe Europe and India. And, and these rumors have been churning and churning, and we knew this was coming. Now we're hearing something even crazier, that in the same way as all the Chinese makers, a lot of them have sub-brands or sub-categories of phones, OnePlus might be joining the fray with either a sub-brand or a sub-category. So maybe potentially named Nord, which is a weird name. I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> and or potentially just a cheaper tier or mid-range tier like they did briefly with the OnePlus X. That's what I'm hearing. But I want to know how you're structuring it on your end. Yeah, I mean, the, the rumors, as you said, for a while have been that OnePlus is going to have a cheaper version um, of the OnePlus eight devices. So we were expecting something with the Snapdragon 765, probably priced under $400. And that was the expectation, you know, just a a less powerful, you know, maybe drop that, you know, really high refresh rate display and a couple of the other features that really make the OnePlus 8, I don't want to say so expensive, more expensive than other mid-range devices. But this new rumor kind of paints it in I don't know, for me, a whole new light where, as you said, launching maybe a sub-brand or a subcategory of devices for essentially emerging markets rather than developed markets like we've seen in the West and in Europe, and giving consumers something that is significantly more affordable and maybe even along the lines of the pricing that the original OnePlus One had back in the day, which is mm-hmm. just a little bit over $300. And compared to the $800 or so that we've seen for this year's lineup, that is a significant change in their go-to-market approach because they've slowly been creeping up the, the segment of the scale and are essentially now competing on the same level as every other flagship manufacturer, granted just slightly cheaper where their original devices were about half the price of what a flagship smartphone was. So, I mean, OnePlus isn't new to trying to create a cheaper smartphone. They did that, what was it, like three, four years ago now? They had one version of a cheaper version of their smartphone that was 
I don't know, based off of the current rumors, essentially the OnePlus Z. And, but this whole new aspect of doing something a little bit more, or, and the quote is, a more accessible price. And the things that P. Lau has been tweeting and sharing have been reminiscent of the, the original launch of the OnePlus device, the OnePlus One back in the day. So who knows what it's actually going to end up being. We don't have any concrete rumors yet as yeah. to what They're definitely this de- messing with us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it could just be an elaborate April Fool's joke. Who knows? But I mean, the, the one thing I'd like to note is OnePlus is technically a sub-brand already well yeah they're part of a group right that doesn't itself directly make phones called bbk that owns oppo and vivo as well yeah yeah so i mean they own oppo vivo do they don't they own uh redmi the redmi is xiaomi so realme realme yeah is under oppo i don't think it's a separate brand yet but i mean it's it's their sub brand yeah but my question is this is is are we looking at a OnePlus? As you said, like OnePlus is going back to their roots, making a $300, $400 phone that ticks a lot of spec boxes like the Poco phone, Poco Now, and others, you know, Redmi and others, Realme, and, and Vivo has their sub-brand IQOO, IQ or whatever it's called. I mean, there is that. But the other thing it could be is in the same way as Oppo has Realme and Vivo has mm-hmm. IQOO, is OnePlus going to introduce a new sub-brand like of their own, not BBK, but actual OnePlus called Nord, which is what the rumor might be. And that these phones are going to be the, the Nord phones, like the line. And we can talk about the name separately. It's kind of weird because for me, Nord implies keyboards. Uh, Nord makes fantastic professional synths and keyboards. Uh, NordKeyboards.com, check it out. And then there's, of course, NordVPN. Everybody's probably heard of or seen some sponsorship from NordVPN somewhere on the internet. And so I just don't, I feel like it's a weird name to have for a phone sub-brand. Anyway, so I don't know what they're going to do, but there's definitely some sort of cheaper OnePlus phone coming. And from everything we've heard so far, this OnePlus 8 Lite, OnePlus Z, OnePlus Nord, whatever it's going to be called, is whether it's a sub-brand or just a new tier of cheaper, more affordable OnePlus going back to its roots phones, is definitely going to kick a lot of boxes, which is why I think it might just be India only, because 765G is what we're hearing. That mm-hmm. is not that cheap of a chip. Like We're not talking Snapdragon 690, which was launched last week, which we discussed on the show then. And then we're talking about 90 hertz display and we're talking about, you know, multiple cameras and stuff. So, but then again, if you look at what Poco is doing with an 865 at $500, you know, that's kind of amazing, right? So, yeah. And that's the thing. It, it, it all depends on what they're actually trying to achieve with this. Are they trying to simply gain more market share like their other brands are in some Asian markets where you know, finally the regular consumer can actually afford a device, but a mid-range device is the max that they can afford. And simply, you know, getting into India and some of those uh, Asian markets allows them to get a foothold so that when, you know, say someone who's making $5,000 a year gets a promotion and then finally they're making $10,000 a year, they're still sticking with that brand but just buying the more expensive version of the phone. They're buying, you know, the regular OnePlus 8 rather than the OnePlus Nord. And a lot of manufacturers have taken that approach with their sub-brands that they've been launching the last couple of years. I don't know if we've ever seen the numbers as in there's brand recognition and brand loyalty where they're sticking to that and making the upgrades, but a lot of these brands are making a name for themselves within these cheaper markets, something that uh, you know, HTC tried to do this a decade ago and failed miserably as they were trying to get into the uh, the market in India. And the Chinese manufacturers have had a lot more success with it. And 
I don't know if you were tracking this or if you've talked about this on your podcast, but there were quite a few Indian smartphone makers that were the number one sellers in India, and the Chinese manufacturers came in and wiped them out completely. I think there's maybe only one of them that's actually left when five years ago there was six or seven of them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And those sub-brands are primarily for India and China. Like, mm -hmm. you know, IQOO is China. It's probably mostly China. That's Vivo, but Vivo is mostly China. Then Oppo and Xiaomi have been battling it out in India between Realme, and which is the Oppo sub-brand, and Redmi, which is the Xiaomi sub-brand. And speaking of, like, talking about, like, similar branding here, right? Like, they're really trying to step on each other's toes. And Realme is winning right now. Oppo is winning. I mean, for now, they've made incredible strides in India. But Oppo also sells in India as Oppo. And Oppo and Xiaomi also sells in India as Xiaomi. It's, it's very complicated. And then Xiaomi has CC as a sub-brand, which is a Chinese sub-brand. And then there's Poco as a sub-brand. Although Poco, they've spinned it off as a separate company, they say. But they always say that, and it's still part of Xiaomi, I mean. Yeah, and, and it's kind of interesting to me because it's like, it's like you can spin it off all you want. It's, it's still the same thing. Like, you can see the similarities. Like, it's like, I just got my Poco F2 Pro review in it. And so we'll be talking about that at some point. But... It's exactly the same as the Redmi K30 Pro. It's exactly the same. The only thing that changes is the brand on the back. Like spec-wise, price-wise, everything is the same. So it's not like, you know, this is not always the case. There are some phones from these sub-brands that are completely unique and separate, right? So, yeah. But I think it's very interesting. It really shows how much OnePlus has matured in the last few years, right? Like they've gone from this early adopter tech savvy darling making really great phones that are getting more and more f featureful and expensive to then getting in bed with the carriers in various countries then to making a real flagship I, I consider the OnePlus 8 Pro to be really a true flagship there's no corners cut like everything is there and it's expensive comparatively but it's still cheaper than the competition and then you know now it's potentially time for them to re-explore that mid-range they tried to explore the OnePlus X and didn't succeed it was a great little phone that OnePlus X for its time so I, I'm looking super looking forward to it no matter what they do but I love how they're teasing us playing with marketing with that weird Instagram account and all that and it's just kind of like the rumor mill on this has been almost I would say the Two things that have been the complete rumor mill, like we can't get to an outcome and we're waiting for an outcome are this and the Pixel 4a, like, you know, and the more and more I look at it, the more I think the Pixel 4 is just either going to be completely canceled or dropped at a $299 price point. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked about that last week. I don't want to dive into that, but it's just, you know, it's interesting how like we're being marketed to death right now, but by OnePlus. Well, and I, the one thing I find really interesting is you know, OnePlus has never really said how many devices they have sold, but we know from their tweets and what the information they shared, 2019 was their best year to date be because of their partnerships with the carrier partners. And I'm sure 2020 is going, I, who knows how 2020 is going because of the end of the world. <laughs> the pandemic. But uh, IDC shared their numbers from 2019 saying that Google's Pixel lineup was their best year, growing 52% year over year, selling 7.2 million devices, which... A great part due to the Pixel 3a, Yes, but the key here is 7.2 million devices for the Pixel lineup outperformed sales of all OnePlus devices. Wow. So in 2019, OnePlus sold less than 7.2 million devices. That's incredible. And so to think everyone's always complaining about Pixel devices and that Google's business is, you know, not successful, this and that. They were more successful at selling devices in 2019 than OnePlus was. And OnePlus gets so much more attention and so much more praise, which has me thinking OnePlus is actually trying to make a market play so that they have much larger market volumes because right now what they're doing, even though they've been extremely successful in 2019, was their best year to date. They are still insignificant in the market when compared to the larger players. They are on the same level or smaller than Google's Pixel business, and we all know that's tiny. It's a fraction of the market. And it's U.S.-centric. Mm -hmm. Well, U.S.-centric and some markets in Europe and, you know, the Pixel 3a launched in India. Yeah. And so we know OnePlus is not U.S.-centric. So it means that potentially they're selling less phones in the U.S. 
mm-hmm. than Google. But here's the crazy thing. Their brand equity in the US is way bigger, especially now that they have carrier partnerships. Than Pixel. Because you walk into a Verizon store and you don't see the Pixel. No, you used to. You might see the OnePlus, although with Verizon, it's probably going to change any second now because Verizon doesn't care. But I'm saying like T-Mobile definitely spent a lot of time and effort and energy on- With OnePlus. On OnePlus, way more than they ever did on Pixel. Yeah, so I, I think they're trying to make a market play and actually get- more people just to buy any OnePlus. Like, I don't think they necessarily want the cheap end of the market, but I think they've, I mean, what is it? Six years that they've been pushing this high-end device and they're at less than 7.2 million in sales for 2019. You need more volume than that to be a real player, yeah. But honestly, like BBK, the parent company is selling, is, I think BBK is- Killing it. They're number two in the world. Yeah. If, if you add up all of their brands. So I, I don't think they have really that much issue there. I mean, honestly, all the phones are manufactured in the same plants as all the other devices. Yeah. So it's not like they have volume scale issues there, but just the brand recognition and you know the, the notoriety that goes along with it. OnePlus is very well dis- respected within the segment that it's in. But the, the numbers here reveal that the segment that is in is actually a lot smaller than what we thought it was. And not only that, but to get the numbers, you need to go lower and mid, mid-range or lower end. Mm-hmm. But the other problem you have, as you know, is with this pandemic. And it's, you know, it's, it's always been there. It's not that the pandemic is causing it, but the pandemic is a highlight the fact it, that yep. we, our flagships have gotten way too expensive. Oh, completely. And completely. nobody needs that yeah. is the reality, right? Yeah. We're running out of time and I want to quickly go through some news items. Um, mostly I want to mention that both you and I have reviewed the Red Magic 5G mm-hmm. in writing and you on video and I did an unboxing video. I will link to nixfandroid.com review of the Red Magic 5G in the show notes and you should check mine as well on hothardware.com. And we don't have time to go into details. Speaking of Chinese phones that are affordable and packed with tech and specs, like very impressive phone, right? In a nutshell. Yes. For the money. But with the caveats that my takeaway was cameras need work and it's mostly software. It's not a hardware issue. And software needs work in general. There's a bunch of bugs and they're not showstoppers. Mm-hmm. They're just more like death by a thousand cuts type of bugs. They're very annoying, but you, you can still get through it. Yeah, they're the kind of bugs where you feel like, oh man, I can't believe that I'm still dealing with this problem in Android in 2020. But that's what you get for having a very, this is a gaming phone, so it's a very specialized phone ultimately. And it's big and bulky and definitely not water resistant because it has a fan in it. It's got holes, man. Yeah, I would say that if you're a gamer, this is a great phone. If you are looking for a really, really affordable $579 Snapdragon 865 5G phone, I wouldn't recommend you spend that $579 on that phone. I would say you're better off by maybe looking at a Poco F2 Pro or importing some other phone that there's a bunch of choices now in that $500 to $600 range that are super high spec phones. Look at them. As long as they support the bands you need in the country you're in, I would look at those. The nice thing about the Red Magic 5G is that it's officially sold in the US, supported in the US, and works on T-Mobile and AT&T low-band 5G. So that is definitely a plus. So I'll give my quick synopsis. A lot of what you said is completely on the mark. The software needs some work. It's basically stock Android, but there are a ton of little tweaks that they need to make in order to make it a little bit more usable. But it is a device that is intended for one purpose only, and that's gaming. And honestly, we get, I gave it an Editor's Choice Award because of that fact. If you are looking for the best gaming smartphone, I think there is nothing else on the market right now. At that price, that performance, and that display, which is honestly amazing. Amazing. And the fact that it doesn't have a curved display makes me so happy. And a headphone jack for those of you who's still looking for that. And good, good audio. Like good almost audio. as good as quad DAC from uh, LG. And 144 hertz display. There's a lot of ands here. A lot of good things. And so for what it is, if you're looking for a gaming device that's going to give you an edge over the competition, if you're into Call of Duty Mobile, Fortnite, PUBG, first-person shooters, this is the device for you. If you are not into any of that, look for something else because this yeah. is not the phone yeah. for you. 
And that's why, like, because I know a lot of the tech-savvy adopters that listen to this show will be like, oh, I look at the specs and I'm like, the price is unbeatable, but I'm not a gamer. And I'm like, eh, hold your horses, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like the previous Red Magic phones, I could make an argument that potentially you could buy them as a substitute for an affordable flagship, but this one is much more focused on gaming, I feel. Yeah than the previous ones. And it's a little bit more expensive too than the previous ones. And a little more expensive. One final thing on this for me is that, you know, unlike the Black Shark from Xiaomi, which I think you can import, this is officially a US phone. So it supports the bands, you get a warranty, all that stuff. It doesn't support the bands in Canada though. Uh, No, but it does support them in the US for low band 5G and it does support LTE on Verizon reliably. No CDMA though. Of course. All right. So we have more topics. A couple of things to mention that are really interesting. On my YouTube channel, you'll find in the description in the show notes below that I have an unboxing video for a Panasonic Toughbook. It's not a consumer device, but check out what you can get when you spend the money as a company, as a business, to get an, a rugged Android tablet and see what you get. It's pretty amazing. Um, that thing is a freaking beast. Did you do a drop test? Yeah, maybe I should, but I don't want to scuff it up. I can totally do a drop test. It'll survive. I'm just saying like it's not a beast in terms of speed and performance. It's just a beast in terms of its ability to take a beating. Mm -hmm. So check that out. Then there is, I want to give a a little hat tip to Honor for continuing to make great affordable phones with an Honor 9A, which I will link to the Fandroid story on that, which is a 149 euro phone with multiple cameras. And here's the kicker, though. The phone is 149 euro, but you get software credit through the app gallery for, if you're a gamer, of nearly 140 euro. Wow. So so it essentially, if you play those games, and some of them are like 50 or 40 euro credit for specific games for in-app purchases, if you're already playing those games, the phone's essentially free. Right. There you go. So, I mean, it's got like, I think, a triple camera... It has a MediaTek chipset, which is interesting for a Huawei-based phone. A lot of them use their current chips. Of course, there's no Google mobile service on the phone. This is really a phone for, you know, if you're in a market where Google doesn't really matter too much in your life, then go for it. Because again, you know, it's not just Google apps that don't work. It's things like Uber doesn't work and Netflix may or may not work depending, et cetera, et cetera. But look, at this price, the spec sheets are impressive and kudos to Honor for not just focusing on trying to make an affordable flagship again, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a budget device. Or like, if you're this is your first smartphone and you don't have a job and you're scraping together money, this is the device you want to buy. I mean, at 149 it, yes, there are some cheaper devices out there, but to get a device from Honor at this price range and with the software that Honor devices have, uh, is a lot better than a lot of the other alternatives that are right around that same price point. Yeah, absolutely. There is a tech radar story I'm going to link to in the show notes, which I thought was really interesting, which compares all the Moto G of like this year, the 2020s model range of two Moto Gs, and tells you which ones are in which markets because they're in, some markets have them called Moto G8 something and some markets have them called Moto G something like the US this year doesn't have the 8 in there but they're actually all equivalent so the Moto G8 for example the, the base G8 non something is actually the G Fast we just got in the US mm-hmm. and then the G Stylus in the US is the G8 Pro in other markets and then there's a G8 Plus that we're not getting. And there's a G8 Play that we're not getting. And then, oh, the G8 Power in other markets is the G Power here. So it's really interesting to see how uh, the fragmentation in Motorola's marketing is insane. And this is why I thought this article was really interesting. I think it's interesting that they decided to drop the 8 from the U.S. market specifically because is there is there a copyright or a trade, not trade, um, yeah, trademark for a G8. I don't know. May, uh, disputes with LG? I don't know. Oh, could be. Yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting because it'll make a lot more sense once you read the article if you've been following kind of the history of the G series. It's a really interesting series of phones and historically significant because it's thanks to Moto that we have phones now like 
some of those incredibly awesome mid-rangers that are officially available in the US, like, oh, segue, like the TCL 10 series, right? And so TCL 10 series has been out for a while. I reviewed it on hot hardware, the 10L and the 10 Pro. And I just want to mention them because they, they received a major software update based on the feedback from early users and from us reviewers. And they've improved camera performance um, I haven't had a chance to really dive deep and check these improvements, but it looks like they uh, they did what we wanted. They fixed things like oversharpening, oversaturation, things that were relatively straightforward to fix. It's really nice to see the TCL coming in finally with their own brand of phones rather than Alcatel, which is their sub-brand traditionally for phones, is really being responsive to their consumer base and user base in the US like that. So kudos for them, right? Yeah, I installed the update on it just yesterday, and I've been playing with it today, taking pictures and using using the phone a little bit more because I, I did my written review a couple weeks ago as well. It's, I mean, there's no significant huge difference in performance of the device, but the camera, you can tell the difference. I, I gave it a mediocre score for the price point for the camera, uh, and with this update, uh, I'm going to be going back to my review and... Um, probably updating that a little bit with the new software update to give it a more uh, balanced perspective with with what it can actually perform now. So, Cool. Yeah, and along with the software updates comes some reduced pricing. I will link to the uh, story here on XDA Developers that has all the information for pricing. They actually lay it out from like where you can get the deal, like Amazon, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a 15% discount for both the devices. Yeah, across the board. And then there's some other deals with carriers or something, I think, like if you buy a line with one or something, right? I forget. It was very complicated and it's all laid out in there. Speaking of those 10 series, there is rumors, this is not confirmed, that you've probably, some of you might not even know this exists, but T-Mobile has, has its own quote, quote unquote own with big quotes around it, its own line of phones every year called the Revel, R-E-V-V-L, because you know they want to be rebels, R-E-B-B-Ls. <laughs> oh my God, I went there. Dad joke. Okay, so the Revel line of phones is always usually a Moto G series, speaking of Moto Gs, that is rebranded as a T-Mobile phone and usually adds NFC magically because all the G series seem to be missing NFC. And somehow T-Mobile manages to talk Moto into putting NFC in the G series. Woohoo! So I actually recommended the Revel last year because if you wanted a G series and you wanted to get uh, NFC, that was your ticket. Uh, so the Revels this year coming out are going to be Supposedly, this is the rumor, TCL 10 phones. So the Revel 4 Plus will be the 10L and the Revel 5G will be the 10 5G, which we haven't reviewed yet, but it's coming. So there you go. That's it. That's the news. We're done. <laughs> we made it through. Nick, do you want to tell folks where they can find you on the internet? Just the internet. Go to internet.com and I'm there. Is that how it works? No, I'm just kidding. You can find me uh, mainly writing on fandroid.com. Uh, my videos, youtube.com slash fandroid, or my personal Instagram and Twitter is at Nick M. Gray. And folks, yes, you should give Nick and his whole team at Fandroid some love. Read fandroid.com, check out the articles, check out the YouTube channel. It's so full of beautiful videos. And you know where to find me? I'm at Tankgirl on Twitter and Instagram. That's T-N-K-G-R-L, like the comic book character Tankgirl without the vowels. And uh, Twitter is a good place to comment on the show, discuss the show, tell me what you don't like and like, mistakes I made. I make mistakes. So comment in Twitter, tell me what you think. And then, of course, Instagram is you're going to find pretty pictures, photos of phones, photos taken with phones, all that good stuff. There's a YouTube channel as well for me. It's youtube.com slash mobile tech podcast. Please check it out. It's a visual compliment to the audio that you're hearing right now so if you want to see pictures of the new phones uh, and video of the new phones go to youtube uh, there'll be some stuff there unboxings usually and check it out please subscribe like tell your friends all that good stuff about the youtube channel 
I also want to point out that if um, you are just new to the show, you just kind of listen to it because you know Nick or something and you came on board, the podcast lives at mobiletechpodcast.com. There's an RSS feed there if you're old school. But we're also on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, pretty much everywhere good podcasts are found. And my request to you, if you're right there right now listening on your special app, please rate or review the podcast if you have a chance. It really helps. I know not all apps support that, but if you can, that would be great. Also, uh, support us uh, financially with a donation. There is a uh, link in the show notes to a uh, PayPal donation box. Please consider helping out. We, me and my guests and my team can't do this without your support. So consider that. And finally, I want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible.com has been with us pretty much since the beginning of the show and been a fantastic longtime sponsor. If you love books as much as I do, you know that reading is not the only option. Sometimes you just need to listen. Sometimes you run out of podcasts to listen. Sometimes you're sick and tired of hearing my voice and you want to hear the soothing voice of a book author reading their own book on Audible. And the reason I bring this up is because you can kind of marry the two, because if you subscribe to Audible through the link in the show notes, you can support the podcast. So not only do you help us out, whether you stay or not, but you actually get 30-day free trial. You get a free book at the end. It's a pretty good deal. So you support us, you support them, you get good, cool books, some of them read by the authors. As I said, Audible has incredible selection. They've been around forever. They are the reference when it comes to audiobooks. So check them out. The link in the show notes is audibletrial.com slash mobiletech. That's audibletrial.com slash mobile tech. So you don't even have to look at the show notes. You can just type that in right now and help us out. I want to thank Audible for being with us forever, it seems. And I appreciate them very much for it. And I want to thank you, Nick, for being on the show again. Thank you. My pleasure. Wonderful. We'll have you on again sometime soon, of course. And we'll have another show next week, folks. So stay tuned for that. Until then, cheers, everybody. This has been the Mobile Tech Podcast with Tank Girl, proudly presented by worldpodcasts.com. You can visit us online at mobiletechpodcast.com.